So, the first scripture reading for today is Proverbs 17, verse 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. And the second scripture reading for today is Proverbs 15, verse 31. The ear that listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. How are you guys? What a game of uh, what a game of football that was, eh? <laughs> nil nil at Wembley, unbelievable. That was a gutsy. Oh, you thought it, this is the English service, guys? <laughs> Should we get on with it? Now we'll, let's uh, we'll cross our fingers for Wales uh, this evening as uh, as they go head to head with Italy. Um, but it was it was a really spirited game of football on uh, Friday evening at Wembley. Nil nil, gutsy Scottish effort. Put on my dark blue. My grandmother was Scottish, so. With apologies to the gentleman in row C. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's move on. Well, I don't know if that was a wise thing to say at the beginning, but we're talking about wisdom, so maybe it gives you a bit of good contrast uh, for this evening. We're in this series, Proverbs, A Word to the Wise, and uh, including this evening, there's four more until we have our, our summer baptism on the 18th of July. Just a shout out for that. I know there'll be an announcement uh, at the end. And just mark that in your calendars, Sunday the 18th of July, you're going to be at the baptism, you're going to want to be there for the afternoon, and hopefully, fingers crossed, there'll be a church at five in the park that day. What we're doing in this uh, series, this little series here in Proverbs, A Word to the Wise, is really getting into, we want to get into the book of Proverbs and, and get practical wisdom out of this ancient book for our lives, for how we should live our lives. We want to get God's wisdom, which is in this book. This is a book of wisdom, and we want to apply this divine wisdom to our lives. Last Sunday, we looked at friendship, understanding that it's wise to choose our friends carefully, to choose wisely into which relationships we invest deeply, and that our strongest, closest friendships should be, or it would be wise that they would be, with mature Christians who share our faith in Jesus and the hope of our lives, where our lives are directed. I'm going to be building on that message uh, this evening and from last week, and we're going to be looking this evening, so last week, friendship, we're going to be looking this evening at two things, conflict and correction, conflict and correction. And, uh, and I don't know if you got that out of the two Proverbs there, it's always a bit difficult, I find, when the text that's read is different to what's on the screen, and everyone's like, what? Um, but we're going to be looking, the first proverb that we looked at, the, this, that we heard uh, this evening, Proverbs 17, one deals with conflict, strife in a house, and the second one, um, the translation that was shown said rebuke, but the, the idea there is correction, that we need correction in our lives. And as I say, these things have to do with friendships. So we're kind of building on the message of last... Um, of, of last Sunday. Now, so let's start with conflict. All of us, I think, have been, are now, or will be involved in conflict in relationships. And all of us need correction. We need to be corrected throughout our lives. 
And as we'll see uh, this evening, Proverbs says that correction comes through healthy relationships, through good friendships that are characterized by this, by this mutual love rather than by conflict and strife. So what practical wisdom does Proverbs have to give us on conflict and correction this evening? Again, we can't look at every single proverb. You might have heard a proverb about conflict or correction. You think, well, I hope I might hear that one tonight. We can't do every single one, but I've got a selection for you this evening. So as we say here, let's dive in. Proverbs 17.1. It would be good to dive into some water this evening. Very warm. Proverbs 17.1, here it is, the current NIV translation, better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Or we could take Proverbs 15, 17, it gives us a similar idea, better a a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. I want you to see from these two verses, these two Proverbs, it should make it clear what kind of conflict I'm talking about this evening or that we want to look at this evening. We're not talking about conflict with strangers. So the example would be road rage. I don't know if you know what road, if you've experienced road rage. I've definitely experienced road rage. I've been on both ends of road rage. That's not the kind of conflict we're talking about this evening, nor is it the conflict we might have with unmoving, stiff necked bureaucrats in offices who demand that we fill out their forms in exactly the right way. And you didn't bring that document, so you have to make another appointment in two weeks, and you're just like, there's not that kind of conflict either. Nor is it uh, conflict with companies. You might have seen the um, ads up the moment. I think they're 402, where they say, you know, while um, you know, while the neighbours are screaming, shoot, you're screaming, goal. So it's not about why. You know, that'd be conflict about Wi-Fi speed at home, where you get, you know, how you get really angry. You might get really into conflict with a an internet company based on their service provision. In terms of those general situations, let me just give you Romans 12, 18. Paul says, if it is possible, that's an if, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It's a verse that I used to read before I went to the Ausländeramt. (laughs) They've improved, they've improved. They got an award for the most friendly one in Germany, so there you go. Rather, tonight we're talking about interpersonal conflict, that is, conflict with friends and family. Because you heard the context, better a a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. The context is sharing a meal, table fellowship. We all understand how it can be when we're in a situation, maybe with friends, where there's something going on, there's a conflict going on, or with family, where there's a conflict, and we're at the table and there's a tension or an awkward silence. That's the kind of conflict we're talking about. I've I've spoken to a number of people here, not just in friends and family, but even in these last 18 months dealing with corona, with COVID-19, I've heard a lot about different flat share conflicts here in Freiburg, students sharing a flat, and there are different expectations or standards or demands on how we live together, you know, in light of these um, conditions and these ordinances. That's the kind of conflict affecting friends and family in a home or in a fellowship in a community. And both of these Proverbs say, this kind of conflict, this kind of strife is, dis- is, is one that destroys joy and fellowship and fullness and blessing in life. It's better to be alone, this proverb says, God's wisdom says, it's better to be alone at home with a dry crust of bread and at peace 
than to be at a party, at a, at a house full of guests and a party and fellowship when, when there's strife and conflict and tension there. Now, taking my last five years where I've been a pastor here at this church at Calvary Freiburg, including the, the pleasure of being one of the pastors here on a Sunday evening at Church at Five, the impression that I get here, the, I think the impression that we all get here to some degree at church, when we come together to celebrate a service, is a little bit skewed and warped, because the major and returning impression I get when I come to Church at Five on a Sunday evening or to the morning services on a Sunday morning is that everything is hunky-dory, that this is a cool community, hey, we all love Jesus, all is good in the world, conflict, what conflict? Yet the view I get outside of Sunday gatherings is probably a little closer to the truth, which is that we as Christians are engaged in interpersonal conflict just as much as anyone else, probably. The question is, how do we deal with it? How do we deal with it differently to the world? You see, when I talk to people from our church community here, when I ask and hear how people are going, when I hear things through the church grapevine, when I have pastoral counseling meetings, it becomes very clear. Conflict is an issue far more than you'd think if you just came to service and hung around for some nice fellowship after and you heard the cool soundtrack in the background and, you know, there's a cool pineapple down the back. Everything's kind of cool. But conflict is an issue far more than you'd think. And this is a thing. And so I think... It's wise that we deal with it. It could be um, conflicts that I'm kind of getting at the moment. It could be boy meets girl or girl meets boy, and then suddenly boy doesn't want girl anymore or girl doesn't want boy anymore. That's a conflict there. There's conflicts, as I said, in flat shares that I've heard about from this last year. Uh, that would be VG in German. Conflicts with parents in small groups, disappointments, expectations that weren't met in a small group fellowship, maybe. This is a thing amongst us as Christians, and we want to open up the Word of God here in Proverbs, and see what God's Word has to say about this. So, to start with, let's look at a few of conflict's causes and some attitudes to avoid. Let's look at a few of conflict's causes and some attitudes to avoid. Now, as we do this, um, yeah, you might be thinking, as, as I mentioned some of these attitudes from Proverbs, you might start to think about people you know. <laughs> You might start to think about friends you know, or people in your flat share, or people in your small group, or people in your family, and okay, that's fair enough, but my encouragement and my warning to you would be, even as you might think, hey, I see this negative attitude in my friend or in my, in my small group, ask the Lord to be speaking to your heart, that you'd be testing your own heart to be thinking about yourself and your attitude first, and we'll pick that up at the end when we look at correction. So, firstly, this is what Proverbs 10 verse 12 says, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. There's a contrast here between love and hatred. If we remember back to a couple of weeks ago, um, love, I said, a good definition is to will, to desire the good of the other, even at your own cost. So, a heart attitude characterized by love desires the best for the other person, even at cost to oneself, and is therefore, here it says, willing to cover over wrongs, therefore willing to let go, to de-escalate, to forgive, to drop it. But hatred here stirs up. Hatred stirs up, it escalates, it agitates, 
A person with hatred in their heart is likely to push situations towards conflict. Hatred is obviously lacking in love, and hatred is a strong word. It's interesting, the idea um, or the word hate in uh, Hebrew has the idea of reducing in status, reducing in status. That means the hatred towards another person, there's a sense that there's a desire there, that person is up here, and I want to reduce them, I want to pull them down. I want to pull them down in their status, in their standing, make them smaller. And so behind hatred lurk things like envy, jealousy, insecurity. We're insecure in ourselves, in who we are, in our identity, and therefore we see someone who appears to be secure or confident or successful, and our hearts are filled with jealousy and envy And if that is unchecked, that can blossom into hatred, and hatred then stirs up conflict. We shouldn't think that this is something like, um, that characterizes the whole person, that the whole person is just, you meet that person on the street, you're like, man, that is just Mrs. Hate. He's just Mr. Hate. Hatred need not be hot or obvious. It can just as well be subtle and cold. So, hatred is a cause of conflict. Another one, Proverbs 15, verse 18. Proverbs 15, verse 18. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. There's a, there's a contrast here between patience and calm on the one hand and a hot temper on the other. This is, this is not talking about righteous anger. Jesus had righteous anger when He cleared the temple. Jesus had righteous anger when He confronted the unbelief of the scribes and Pharisees when He would heal people, particularly on the Sabbath. This is, this is not righteous anger. This is a hot temper. The person who's calm and patient, they don't throw fuel on the fire. They don't throw fuel on the fire. They calm things down. But notice here as well, it's not that, it's not like that there's an episode of anger, an outburst of anger, and that's what stirs up a conflict. Rather, it's a heart attitude and habit that stirs up a conflict. It's a hot-tempered person. It's not that somebody gets angry, they have an outburst, and then a conflict ensues. It's that this person has a temperament of being hot-tempered, and this is a, a, this is a, a pattern of life, a heart attitude, and that's what stirs up conflict and strife. So, this is not permanent anger. Again, this is not you go out onto the street and you're like, hey, that's Mr. Anger but this is lurking under the surface. It's like a a geyser or a volcano. You just kind of, it's lurking there. It's just waiting to explode. There you go. Jeez, whoa. Good word is volatile. I don't know if you know that word, volatile. A a hot-tempered person is volatile. You never know what could set that person off. It's not so much as they're impatient and you know, okay, as soon as I don't come immediately or don't ring back immediately, they're going to be angry. It's not so much that they're impatient as that they're touchy, they're oversensitive, they can't take a joke, they're volatile. Hot-temperedness comes from insecurity, inferiority. It's an overcompensation. When we have a wrong view of ourselves, when we're insecure in ourselves, 
when we're insecure in our identity and who we are, we don't derive our identity from Christ. Hot-temperedness becomes an overcompensation. We're likely to lash out. We're likely to be over-defensive. We want to push people away from seeing things as they really are, and that's why we lash out in a hot temper. It can be, it can base, be based on self-loathing as a, def- as a defense mechanism. We, we hate ourselves, and therefore we, 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 we lose our cool with other people when they start to get too close. Hot-temperedness has to do with unbelief in the promises of God, not trusting God, not trusting that He means well with us, being angry at the way God has made the world, the way God has made you, or at the way life is turning out. And when we know, you might know hot-tempered people, they become a kind of situation to be managed. It's difficult to have a meaningful two-way friendship. They tend to be, you tend to realize that I can only ever really give these people encouragement and comfort, because anything else, and they're likely to lash out. It's hard to relax in the presence of hot-tempered people. You think twice about ever being even mildly critical or giving feedback or correction, because inwardly you're like, if I say that, and that person has an outburst, and that's so much emotional capital I have to invest to deal with that situation, I'd rather just avoid that. And you think it's not really worth it. So there's hot-temperedness. is an attitude to avoid. It's a, one of conflict's causes. Let me give you two more quickly. Proverbs 13.10. Proverbs 13.10, pride. Where there is strife, there is pride. But wisdom is found in those who take advice. Where there is strife, there is pride. But wisdom is found in those who take advice. There's a contrast here between being between pride, between being proud and being teachable and humble, willing to take advice. Pride is perhaps the original sin, the very first sin, which afflicted the enemy, the devil. Pride is really saying, my way or the highway, as we say in English. And so, in other words, pride is a false sense of yourself. It's believing yourself to be wiser than you really are, so I don't need to take advice. I already know everything that I need to know. I don't need any help. But pride is also a false sense of self in the sense of, you, you, you might not say this, but deep down you see yourself as more important and more valuable than other people. So we have to do it my way because I'm right. I know best. You have to do what I want because I matter more. And this proverb is saying, if you find a conflict, if you come across a quarrel or strife or a conflict, you can bet pride is going to be involved in there somewhere. Pride is going to be involved in there somewhere. And this leads to foolishness. Foolishness. Proverbs 20, verse 3. It is to a person's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. It's to a person's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to, to quarrel. I can only simply repeat that, every fool is quick to quarrel. That's the statement here in this proverb, a big issue. Even among Christians is, that, is being an idiot. 
A big issue, even among Christians, is being an idiot. We are often idiots and therefore quick to quarrel. This is talking about misreading situations, misreading issues, not seeing them in the right perspective and therefore becoming willing or being willing to fight about just about anything, no matter how petty and small it might be. A fool is quick to quarrel. We don't want to be foolish. So let's look at what Proverbs says about dealing with conflict. So again, obviously, you can probably think of conflicts that aren't directly based on hatred or pride or foolishness. But let's look at what Proverbs says about dealing with conflict. These are certainly attitudes, God's wisdom is telling us, that stir up conflict, that make conflict more likely and make it worse when it does occur. So, how do we deal with conflict? Let's look at what the Proverbs say. Let's start in Proverbs 17, 14. Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. So, drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. So, drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. Have you, have you guys ever seen a dam breach? Wow, dude, that's an experience. You should write a, you should write a column about it. <laughs> Amazing. It often starts with a little hole, you know, a little trickle of water, the pressure mounts, the hole gets bigger, and then there's a breach, and everyone goes, damn. And then once that dam is gone, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put that dam with the water behind it back again. So, the aim of this proverb here is to sort it out while it's still small. Sorry. As it says in the second line here, drop it. Just drop it. This phrase, this very phrase, just drop it, is a word that I'm constantly speaking in my house at this moment. At this stage of child rearing, four young kids, Basically, my kids are going through, you know, life school and they're being taught over and over again in me or my wife saying to them, hey, just drop it, just let it go. We're trying to teach them how to analyze what is important, what's worth fighting for and what is not. What's important and what is not. That is to say, we need to be able to tell the difference between principles and methods between principles and methods. You might think about baking a cake. There are certain principles which are important when it comes to cake baking. I've certainly gone out of limb here because I've never actually baked a cake and now I'm struggling. Um, but there are methods of baking a cake. You can bake a cake in a conventional oven. You can bake a cake, theoretically, in a wood-fired oven. You can even buy a Ninja Foodie and bake a cake in that. That's a method. We don't want to get caught up in the method and argue about how to bake a cake. Insisting on, different, on, a, on one method being right is foolish childness, childishness. But standing up for principles, here I'm kind of, you know, trying to grab principles of baking at the moment. They're not coming to me. I assume flour is involved and sugar, let's say. So standing up for principles is not foolish. But arguing about methods is childish foolishness. 
And if you think about it, a lot of times in life, conflict, especially among Christians, is when we confuse method with principle. We need to be strong on biblical principles. We need to have freedom when it comes to methods. There are different ways of doing things and still being faithful to Scripture. But we don't want to give up the principles of our faith. And then there's timing and resources and practice. Let me explain. If you want to be able to tell the truth in big situations, that's not going to come to you by practicing daily by telling little lies. Practicing daily by telling little lies is not going to lead to the situation when there's a real opportunity and a necessity of telling the truth that you then tell the truth because you haven't practiced. So we need to practice. We need to practice these principles of dealing with conflict, learning when to drop it and let it go. Secondly, you can't fight every battle at the same time. It's hard to fight a multi-front war. You learn that if you study modern European history. There are limited resources. You need to pick your battles and work out with wisdom and advice which hills are worth dying on, which things are really essential and important. And sometimes it's just not the right time. Solomon in his wisdom says in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 8, there is a time to fight and there's a time to make peace. And sometimes it's just not the right time to fight. I have a couple of friends and sometimes I feel these friends of mine, they're like, they'll fight on any hill, any little thing and they'll fight you. you They've got their opinion, they've got their position and they're, they're willing to defend it, it seems, to the death. They, they, you know, they're going to they're fight and argue over every little thing and everything seems to have the same importance to them, the same intensity. It can be exhausting. It can be exhausting. We don't want to be like that. We want to have this wisdom that comes from Proverbs 17, 14. We want to practice letting go. Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam, so drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. Let's practice letting go practice dropping things and learning to apply wisdom. Is this, is this of such importance that I need to hoist the colors here, stand my ground, defend these biblical principles at stake, or is it just a matter of difference of opinion and method? Then drop it. Drop it. Second one, Proverbs 26, 20, without wood, a fire goes out, Without a gossip, a quarrel dies down. Without wood, a fire goes out. Without a gossip, a quarrel dies down. Especially when it comes to interpersonals. I'm talking friendships, marriage and spouses, small groups, even flat shares. What we want to take away from this proverb is just shut up. Just shut up. A wise husband and a wise wife know when to hold their tongue. Just because you can say it doesn't mean you should say it. We need to rise above it. And we're not just talking here about shutting up when it comes to talking with the person, to the person with whom we have a conflict. We don't say it to anyone else either. We need to starve that fire of fuel. We need to rise above it, have integrity, make the choice today When you're sober, when you're thinking clearly, say, I'm going to learn to shut up. I'm going to write that down. This is is how I want to live. I I want to deal with conflict well. 
I don't want to be a gossip who kind of puts wood on the fire and keeps things going. I don't want to talk about, you know, whatever that situation is, it's a small group behind their backs or, you know, in my group of friends or I'm not going to talk with one of my flat share um, people in my flat and over about the other one, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to write that down, I'm going to refer to that principle often and that's how I want to live and I'm just going to shut up. That's what Proverbs is saying here. Without wood, a fire goes out. Without, a goss- without gossip, a quarrel dies down. And thirdly, two verses. Proverbs 22.10 and then Philippians 4. Proverbs 22.10 says, Drive out the mocker and out goes strife. Quarrels and insults are ended. Philippians 4, 2 and 3, Paul writes, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche, those are two women, to be of the same mind in the Lord, yes, and I ask you, my true companion there in Philippi, to help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Third way to deal with conflict. First one would be drop it, second one would be shut up, third one, make up or break up. Make up or break up. The key here to the different the difference whether we make up or break up is that Yodia and Syntyche are sisters in the faith. They're Christian women. Interestingly, their conflict made it into the Bible, and they've been mentioned in countless sermons since. And Paul says, writing to the church at Philippi, to at least one of the members of the church, he says, I need you to help them be of the same mind. I need you to help them be reconciled, to put their conflict to bed, to put it to an end. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of reconciliation, of making peace, of dealing with conflict, of conflict resolution. Paul says it's a ministry of reconciliation. First and foremost, that we, who are in conflict with God, that we receive peace through Jesus Christ. But it would be a hollow peace with God if we remained in conflict with each other as brothers and sisters. In Matthew 18, we read these words, verse 21, Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Jesus is really using hyperbole here, so you should always forgive them is basically what He means here. And Jesus warns, He uses a picture of of a servant who was not willing to forgive somebody below Him and who therefore received judgment and says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you with judgment unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Matthew 18, 35. So Jesus says, as Christians, that's us here, we must forgive our brothers and sisters in the faith from our hearts. We cannot hold on to conflict. We cannot hold on to conflict. In reality, if you are in conflict with a brother or sister, you should not be taking communion here. It's that serious. Jesus, in fact, said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you have something against a brother or a sister, then go and make reconciliation and then return. 
to worship and to the temple. When we celebrate communion here, the idea, I know that at the moment in Corona it's a bit different, but the idea is that there's one loaf of bread and we break, that, that loaf represents Jesus' body, and we break that body and we all take a piece of that one loaf. There's one cup representing Jesus' blood and we all drink of the same cup. And this indicates that we are in communion, in fellowship with each other. So it's actually hypocrisy and a lie to take communion when you're in an open conflict with a brother or sister. Jesus says you need to forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Doesn't mean you have to become BFF again, but there cannot be no, there cannot be any bad blood. This might be a challenge for you guys here. Um, you should be able to look any member of this church and this congregation in the eye. You shouldn't have to turn your, your face away from them or kind of sneak out the other entrance or kind of pretend that you're actually going up to the bathroom to avoid them. You should be able to look them in the eye and say, yep, we might not be the best of friends, but we're at peace. That conflict is over. We have forgiven each other. We know how much God has forgiven us, and therefore we're more than willing to forgive our brother and sister from our hearts. That's the challenge for all of us, including for myself here. But when it comes to the mocker, the godless person, those who don't fear God or His Word and who, who openly mock God and mock God's wisdom, yes, we should forgive them. We don't want to live in bitterness, but then we say, goodbye, off you go, see you later. Paul says in Titus 3.10, hey, to Titus, warn a divisive person once, somebody who's stirring up division, strife, conflict in the fellowship, warn them once, then warn them a second time, after that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful, they're self-condemned. So you're free of all obligations. When you come to a person who's mocking of God's wisdom, who refuses to be reconciled, who's not interested in honouring God's Word or God's wisdom, then you're free of obligations. Forgive them so that a root of bitterness doesn't grow in your heart, and then stop throwing your pearls before swine. You, you don't have to continue to be ob obliged to them. So, conflict. The wisdom of God, Proverbs is giving us, giving us some very simple ways to deal with conflict. Drop it, shut up, make up, or break up. I think we should be able to re remember that one as we leave tonight. So, that's conflict. Now, I do want to briefly look at correction too. And here's the connection. See, let's, all of us here, as a church community, as a fellowship, as a congregation, let's, instead of being proud and selfish and therefore causing conflict, stirring it up, let's be, as I said in the first message of this series, let's aim to be, let's aspire to be, let's strive to be, let's ask the Holy Spirit to make us humble and teachable, to accept advice and to therefore welcome our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially our close friends, speaking into our lives. So instead of being proud and selfish and causing conflict, let's be humble and teachable and openly and proactively welcome our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially and particularly our close friends. Let's welcome them speaking into our lives. That's what correction is all about. 
If we think about factors that transform Christian church and community, then this is one of them. This is one of them. If we do correction and correctability well, with mutual love, not with spiritual manipulation or spiritual pride, with one person or some people feeling above the others that they can sort of, you know, be gurus who mentor everyone else and tell them how to live their lives. No, if we avoid that kind of thing, if we avoid superficiality, that we just talk in pious sentences saying things like, every time we see someone from church, how's your walk with Christ, brother? That's superficial. Avoid that crap. But if we really want factors that transform a Christian church and community, this done well, correctability, an openness to advice and input into our lives with love will really bring so many things out of the shadows into the light, we'll have them cleaned up by the cross of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and will really supercharge the spiritual health of a church and of a church congregation. So let's look at the necessity of correction. You know, if we spurn correction, if we dismiss it, if we shut ourselves off to any correction into our lives, to anybody speaking into our lives with any kind of critical feedback or help or, you know, correcting us, not only will we increase conflict, because if we spurn correction, all we do is feed pride. I already know it all. I already know all there is to know. I already see the situation clearly. I don't need you to come and tell me how to live my life. That is a, an attitude to avoid cause of conflict. So, not only do we increase conflict when we shut ourselves off to correction, but we make ourselves fragile. We make ourselves fragile. We actually increase our insecurity, which drives things like envy and jealousy and pride even more. We need to train correctability. It's a great blessing to all of life when we are correctable. You think, I think most of us have a knee-jerk reaction you know, the, I think that phrase actually comes from, you know, when you put a hammer on the knee and it just kind of kicks out? A knee-jerk response. Most of us, and I include myself in this, this is just kind of the natural way we're built. As soon as somebody tries to correct us or offers some helpful criticism, we have a knee-jerk response to kind of push that away. We always feel we have to come back and respond immediately and, and say something and explain ourselves, and defend ourselves and give an excuse why or an explanation for that or, you know, I was feeling tired or, you know, it was a long week or, you know, I was actually thinking this and we can't just let it stand. We, we want to have the last word or we come back with what aboutery. You know, you say that to me but what about you? That's our natural incl inclination response to correction. That's why we have to train this in our church in our congregation, in our small groups, in our families, in our friend groups, in our marriages. Proverbs 31 says this, Proverbs, sorry, Proverbs 15, 31 says this, whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Correction, do you hear that? Correction is life-giving. It leads to life, to strength, to vitality. If you want to be alive, if you want your, your, your life, not just your Christian worship, not just your Bible reading or your prayer life, but your life as a Christian in all its facets, if you want that to be strong, to be vital, to be vibrant, 
then you want to pursue correction because correction is life-giving. It leads to you becoming wise. We've seen that again right at the start, teachability and humility. That is, we have something to learn from others. They can see things about us that we can't see. We want to hear that. That makes us wise. That gives us wisdom. And Proverbs repeatedly, this is just one verse, you could take a few others as well, Proverbs 10, 17 would be another one. Proverbs repeatedly commends and recommends to us correction, teachability, humility. If we always push this away or defend ourselves or close ourselves off to correction, we close ourselves off to life and to the Holy Spirit using our brothers and sisters in the faith to help us grow. And that brings us back to friendship. Many of our sins and problems are things that we can't see ourselves. You know, without a mirror, I can't see my own face right now. It's interesting. Even though I'm kind of in my face, I can't see my face. It's like a key part of me, but I can't see it. I'd need a mirror to see it. But right now, any one of my friends, my brothers and sisters, can see my face and can say, Sam, you've got this major spot on your face there, man. What's that doing there? Let's get rid of that one. We need other people to help us. There are things about our lives that we can't see ourselves. And that's where we come back to friendship and to build on last Sunday's message. So look with me as we finish up in a few moments' time at Proverbs chapter 27. Verses 5 through 6 and verse 9. Proverbs 27, 5 through 6 and verse 9. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. This is a reason, another reason, why you want your closest friends, those relationships you invest most deeply in, to share your faith in Christ and therefore your foundation and therefore your healthy fear of God, respect for His Word, desire to become more like Christ and to live more for His glory. You want the kind of friendships, the kind of trust where you can be corrected. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. They are wounds. They will hurt, especially if your friend, you know, it's often the case that if criticism or correction does come, the closer it is to the truth, and we kind of know deep down, yeah, that's right, the more it hurts. So they are wounds and they will hurt, but they come from a friend. And they're therefore given to us in love in order to build us up. Just let me ask you that question now. Think about that right now. Do you have any friends who can do this? Who could, who could, give, who could wound you, but do so in love, such as, such as the wounds that they might cause you? It might hurt. What they say might hurt but you know that you could trust what they say. Are there people in your life, friends, where you trust them, where you think, yes, there are people, friends, who can do that to me. They can speak into my life. They can correct me. This proverb is saying that is so much better. Even though it hurts in the moment, it is so much better than being flattered by nice 
nothings. You don't want to trust people who flatter you. You don't want to trust people who flatter you. And let me say this, um, as a man, you want men in your life who can correct you, who can speak into your life. You want strong male friendships. And as a woman, you want women in your life who can correct you, who can speak into your life. You want strong female friendships. In Paul's letters to both Timothy and Titus, pastors of churches in Ephesus and on Crete, he gave Timothy and Titus wisdom for church life. And in all three of these letters, there is a principle that men in the church, particularly in the, with the idea of older men investing in younger men, mentoring, older women and younger women, mentoring, that men should be investing in men and women in women. Strong male friendships, strong female friendships. True biblical masculinity is not something that you can develop by yourself as a man, neither is true biblical femininity something you can develop by yourself as a woman, but true biblical masculinity develops from true biblical fraternity, brotherhood, and true biblical femininity develops from true biblical sorority, sisterhood. You want your best friends to give you correction and criticism. That's like perfume and sweet incense, verse 9 says. You see, the advice they're giving you is heartfelt. It comes from the heart. And ultimately, it's going to be like perfume and incense to you. It's going to be a gift. Let me ask the worship team to join us. Join me again. They're already with you. I don't know what I'm asking them to do. Worship team, it'd be great to have you guys up here on stage. Let's pull this all together. And let me leave you with a bit of practical advice and application as we've thought tonight about conflict and correction. As Christians, we need to take conflict seriously. It's not to be brushed under the carpet or ignored. We can't let ourselves be lulled into having great church services, which are awesome. I love the services. I love the fellowship at the back. I love the pineapple. I love the playlist on Spotify. Shout out to Spotify. But we want to enjoy those things, but we don't want to push conflict sort of to the edges. And we're inviting people here from the fellowship or from the church because there's conflict going on in the background. That is not good. It's not to be brushed under the carpet or ignored. So test your own heart. Maybe in this next song or as you go through the week, as you meet as a small group, test your own heart. Are there signs in my heart that I stir up conflict? Is there hatred, jealousy, envy, insecurity in my heart? Am I not secure in my identity in Christ? Do I have a hot temper? Am I proud? Am I foolish? Confess those things to God. Bring them before Him. That's the best way to get back into a good place to be. You can confess Him also to a small group leader, to a good friend. You can, you can come and talk to, to me or one of the pastor's here. It's, you want to get these things out in the open and dealt with. Thirdly, practically, work on dealing with conflict. Ask your friends to give you feedback, how they think you deal with conflict, how they think that you deal with advice if you're in conflict. You can ask us as pastors too, you can ask your home group leaders. Ask for feedback, hey, how do I, guys, how do I deal with conflict and how do I deal with advice? Fourth, be reconciled to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let this message maybe be for you that you say, okay, I need to deal with this conflict now. 
It's gone on for too long. I am living hypocritically. I'm pretending that I'm having communion with my brothers and sisters, and really there's a conflict going on. I need to put it behind me. I need to seek reconciliation. Fifthly, seek correction. Got some instrumentals here, guys. Jeez. Awesome. Fifthly, seek correction and correctability. Invest in friendships where you know your friends are not going to flatter you with nothings, but will give you honest correction. It may hurt, but it will help you. And finally, make a decision. If you do receive criticism and correction, make a decision. Again, soberly, write it down. This is how I want to live. I want to just accept criticism or feedback without immediately speaking back, without defending myself, without asking for examples, without pointing the finger back. I want to say, okay, thank you. Let me go and think and pray about that. The more you do that, the more you encourage your friends to actually offer you correction. You practice humility. And as you go away and pray and think, you should see whether that criticism or correction is right or it might be wrong. Whatever it is, go back to that person and say, thank you. Thank you for your criticism and thank you for your correction. And if you do that, you will grow in stature and wisdom and integrity and respect. So I invite you guys, bring these things now to the Lord in this closing song and as we go through the week. And if you've got any questions, I'd love to talk to you after the service. Amen.